yogi a question sir he said shall i be a monk is my life only for god though pra swami pranavananda smiled gently his eyes were piercing the future child he replied when you grow up there is a beautiful bride waiting for you the boy did eventually marry after having planned for years to enter the swami order it's a little sad moment isn't it all of us kind of hoping and expecting that ah oh, you know is my life going to be only for god am i going to uh, some of us at least you know when we first came on to the path it was such a yeah this is it you know i'm going to do it but of course our own karmas which sometimes we think about our karma as oh it's going to take us away or it's something that's going to be an impediment to my love for god but a karmic process is in fact part of our love for god and we have to learn how to embrace it and use it because there are certain things we have not yet learned that require us to live in a certain setting as opposed to perhaps a more romantic idealistic setting we would have created in our own minds of oh, this is the only way god can be sought this is the only way one can say i truly have dedicated my life to god but that is not true entirely and i love how he just feels he's like oh, there's a bride waiting for you somewhere sometime after swami pranabhananda had visited ranchi i accompanied my father to the calcutta house where the yogi was temporarily staying pranabhananda's prediction made to me so many years before came rushing to my mind i shall see you with your father later on if you remember this is how he ends their conversation in banaras As father entered the swami's room the great yogi rose from his seat and embraced my parent with loving respect bhagavati he said what are you doing about yourself don't you see your son racing to the infinite i blushed to hear his praise before my father the swami went on you recall how often our blessed guru used to say banat banat banjai so keep up kriya yoga ceaselessly and reach the divine portals quickly narayani mentioned in the last class that yogananda ji's father while a great yogi himself as master would say he spent hours in meditation and you know usually kept to himself he was a very simple man even though he held a very high position even at that time in the british railways um he lived frugally he gave generously he did not demand anything that his position offered him naturally but there was one thing that always held him back and that was his <laughs> attachment to his children <laughs> you know he really was very attached to his children and that's something master would mention and swami pranavananda here i think is kind of bringing that concept up because it wasn't that he wasn't meditating every day it wasn't that he wasn't following the precepts of the yogic path i mean as we said he lived such a simple life yet for some reason his son yogananda ji was just kind of going racing towards the infinite and for some particular reason bhagavati was not making the same rapid progress as he should have i also in, enjoy this way keep up your kriya yoga ceaselessly and reach the divine portals quickly sometimes we think of kriya yoga merely as a technique and so it's like yeah how much am i going to meditate i'm going to meditate an hour i'm going to meditate two i can meditate three maybe yogananda ji's father was meditating 7 8 9 hours but whatever it was kriya yoga is not just a technique kriya yoga is a principle 
Of course, the technique's based on the principle, and as we saw in the science of Kriya Yoga, which was just the chapter before, the principle is to be able to quicken and hasten our evolution by constantly offering our life force into the infinite over and over and over again, which we're doing in a very tangible and in a very focused way during the practice itself. But when we get up from the practice, we must continue that principle throughout in everything that we do. Kriya Yoga becomes a lifestyle, not just a thing I do in the morning or in the evening. You have to constantly keep offering. And perhaps in this particular case, in Bhagavati's case, while he was definitely at it in terms of the practice itself, but in the other times he was not perhaps able to offer that one attachment that was still holding him quite firmly to this world. The body of Pranabhananda, which had appeared so well and strong during my amazing first visit to him in Banaras, now showed definite aging, though his posture was still admirably, admirably, admirably erect. Swamiji, I inquired, looking straight into his eyes, please tell me the truth. Aren't you feeling the advance of age? As the body is weakening, are your perceptions of God suffering any diminution? He smiled angelically. The beloved is more than ever with me now. His complete conviction overwhelmed my mind and soul. He went on, I am still enjoying the two pensions, one from Bhagavati here and one from above. Yoganandaji's father used to be Swami Pranabhananda's boss. And it was Yoganandaji's father who allowed Swami Pranabhananda to take an early retirement and still recommend that he have a physical pension. So he would always joke, I have these two pensions, one I'm receiving monetarily because of your father's help, and the other is in the form of bliss that the Divine Father keeps giving me every day. Pointing his finger heavenward, the saint fell into an ecstasy, his face lit with a divine glow, an ample answer to my question. One second here, I was thinking like how beautiful this paragraph, when we see all of them really as guru bhais mm. and disciples of the same guru and how among themselves they supported each other so they could grow spiritually according with their own karma. And I see this very often within Ananda as well, even within the ashram, how the Guru inspires us to support a Guru by so he can have, you know, spend a period where he can grow spiritually a little bit faster. So each one of us has a role to play and it is our responsibility and even a duty to support each other's spiritual progress. And when we see we have certain abundance of prosperity of any kind, whether it is financial, whether it is uh, more time to be utilized in something else, or more space, or more rooms, or more houses, whatever, if they can be used to support your guru by, so whatever little you know period of karma they have to evolve spiritually faster. Um, I think it's quite extraordinary to see that in organizations where Swami Kriyananda said people are more important than things and the spiritual progress of our brothers and sisters are certainly a priority. And I love the fact that Yogananda's father and Yogananda himself, there was like a unit of disciples in that time of in that period where they just supported one another and Babaji was overseeing everything but then Sri Yuteswar was here and all his disciples and all of them were interconnected. It's like they decided to come together in that lifetime to support each other not only spiritually but even practically, financially. So some of them could really uh, achieve self-realization in this lifetime. I mean, I think it's quite inspiring. Sweet. Yeah, and sweet to see that. And now all of them, <laughs> the three of them talking about, oh yeah, I had to, you know, support him. And... Yeah, he's like, this guy was my boss. <laughs> Noticing that 
Pranabhananda's room contained many plants and packages of seed. I asked their purpose. I have left Banaras permanently, he said, and am now on my way to the Himalayas. There I shall open an ashram for my disciples. These seeds will produce spinach and a few other vegetables. My dear ones will live simply, spending their time in blissful God union. Nothing else is necessary. I was reading this yesterday. I was just being reminded of our little makeshift garden, garden here. <laughs> Nothing's really growing really well, but you know, we keep planting those seeds and keep hoping. We got maybe a few leaves of spinach and we got a few yeah. leaves of lettuce. That's a good beginning. So that's a great beginning. <laughs> Nothing else is needed, as Swami Pranavananda says. Father asked his brother disciple when he would return to Calcutta. Never again, the saint replied. This year is the one in which Lahiri Mahashaya told me I would leave my beloved Banaras forever and go to the Himalayas, there to throw off my mortal frame. My eyes filled with tears at his words, but the Swami smiled tranquilly. He reminded me of a little heavenly child sitting securely on the lap of the Divine Mother. The burden of the years has no ill effect on a great yogi's full possession of supreme spiritual powers. He is able to renew his body at will. Yet sometimes he does not care to retard the aging process, but allows his karma to work itself out on the physical plane, using his old body as a time-saving device to exclude the necessity of working out karma in a new incarnation. It's a very interesting concept, isn't it? To have the ability to regenerate everything, to be as youthful as you want, just as Babaji has chosen in this life, or more importantly, perhaps, has been directed by the divine will in this particular incarnation to hold his body and keep that 25-year youthful-looking age. And in truth, Swami Pranabhananda could have done that. If he can create two bodies, I think he can figure out how one body can be fixed easily. Yoganandaji could have done that, Sri Yukteswar could have done that. On one hand, no great master even has any need to ever leave the body. You know, they just can keep living for all eternity in the body itself. But of course, to them, none of this matters. In the body, out of the body, young body, old body, healthy body, weak body, none of it particularly matters so much because their consciousness is just united in divine bliss. However, there is a reality of the body, and in fact, the body itself is a karma-burning device, as a time-saving device, as Yogananda calls it here. And we should sometimes respect the body from that perspective. You know, any time we get a... I remember there was this period where I would constantly stub my toe over and over again. I'd walk around, hit the side of a table, then hit the side of a bed, and then... And each time that happened, I'd always be like, ah, oh, there's some karma my body is kind of having to take on. And you could just see that pattern repeating itself. So you know you've, you know, something's happened. And the body, because perhaps it's a lesson that I don't need to consciously have to work on, and the body just takes it on itself. Whether it's disease, whether it's, you know, being unhealthy a little, whether it's coming with a body that's not perfect in every way. And of course, the entire process of aging is also a karmic process where the body, little by little, the disintegration of the body is because the body is taking on karma from us. And the body is working that out and that very working process begins to disintegrate it just as the entire universe is kind of abiding by that same law of disintegration and renewal. And that's why Yogananda keeps reminded us to perceive for ourselves not just as the physical body but to keep in mind always that detachment that i'm a soul and i'm trapped <laughs> in a body but i need to to remind myself that the soul is ageless is you know always ever new youthful uh, with ever new joys expanded ha can communicate with everything and anyone but we don't live in that reality uh, too often. Mm. We associate everything that happens to us, to our physical body, to our age, to our gender, to our physical, you know, responsibilities. And even though that's true, 
but if we could start training ourselves to always be a little bit detached and not associate everything that happens to us to our body to who we think you are and much more about the soul the soul is eternal and has the ability to do anything and receive unlimited source of energy so play with that thought of don't identify yourself constantly with the body and if anything else do it as a play as a game every day let's see if for five minutes 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 every day i can just you know detach myself and and, and feel as as a soul you know weightless ageless ever joyful and it's incredible how that consciousness has an instant impact in our energy so see if this is something in fact we should <laughs> do more often and keep those thoughts always I'm reminded alive. Of, of master when even though he chose to leave his body he could have you know as we said healed himself and just lived on as long as he wanted to but when he chose to leave his body then for the next 21 days he held his body completely mm. incorruptible even the doctors were baffled and it looked like he just left the body and every day it just looked like he just left the body and he held his body in that state for 21 days only because there were two disciples of his who were coming from India who wanted they didn't want him to be interred already and they wanted to wait before they could pay their respects to Yogananda to their guru before he is interred so he just held his body completely incorrupt the disciples came they took his darshan and then he was entered into the crypt which is a beautiful place if you ever get to the united states in los angeles a place to meditate by yogananda's body in fact i was thinking that i love how yogananda advises to see ourselves just a children of god children of the light so every time you think about yourself don't think about how much do you wait or how you know your hair is or <laughs> your hair is not <laughs> but just i'm a child of the light i'm a child of god and this is who i am and no matter what happens to me i will always be forever in eternity a child of the light i mean such a beautiful yeah. concept i see another challenge coming <laughs> Now, while you're chanting now, add this extra other thing. You're the child of God. No, one challenge at a time. One challenge at a time. Okay, good. Thank you. Months later, I met an old friend, Sanandan, who was one of Pranabhananda's close disciples. My adorable guru is gone, he told me amidst sobs. He established a hermitage near Rishikesh and gave us loving training. When we were pretty well settled and making rapid spiritual progress in his company, he proposed one day to feed a huge crowd from Rishikesh. I inquired why he wanted such a large number. This is my last festival ceremony, he said. I did not understand the full implications of his words. Pranabhanandaji helped with the cooking of great amounts of food. We fed about 2,000 guests. After the feast, he sat on a high platform and gave an inspired sermon on the infinite. At the end, before the gaze of thousands, he turned to me. As I sat beside him on the dais and spoke with unusual force, Sanandan, be prepared. I am going to kick the frame, which means I'm going to leave the body. After a sun stunned silence, I cried loudly, Master, don't do it. Please, please don't do it. The crowd was tongue-tied, watching us curiously. My guru smiled at me. I can already imagine. Like, I'm, about, I'm about to leave. No, don't do it. Don't do it. And everybody wondering, the crowd was tongue-tied, watching us curiously. My guru smiled at me but his solemn gaze was already fixed on eternity. Be not selfish, he said, nor grieve for me. I have been long cheerfully serving you all. Now rejoice and wish me Godspeed. I go to meet my cosmic beloved. In a whisper, Pranabhanandaji added, 
I shall be reborn shortly. After enjoying a short period of the infinite bliss, I shall return to earth and join Babaji. You shall soon, you shall soon know when and where my soul has been encased in a new body. He cried again, Sanandan, here I kick the frame by the second Kriya Yoga. A very kind of sweet moment, isn't it, between guru and disciple. Of course, the disciple's going to... I don't think there'll be ever a case where the disciple will say, yeah, just go, you know, it's okay, it's no big deal. There's, even in that, there's that little bit of attachment for that physical body. There's this little bit of delusion, you can almost say that my guru is, you know, in that body and that he's nowhere else, that his consciousness is not, in fact, infinite. We're so kind of bound by, as Narayani said, since we're bound by our own understanding of ourselves, we naturally kind of project that understanding even onto these great ones. But they were never encased in the body. They had nothing to do with the body. They took on a body so that for a moment we could relate to them. But, and this brings us also to the question of, you know, does the guru have to be in the body and what happens, you know, is a disciple only supposed to find somebody who's been in the body? And of course he doesn't because you know, here it is, the Guru is going to leave sooner or later, but is that going to be the end of his existence? Is that going to be the end of the consciousness? Can we not today tune into Krishna just as well as Arjuna would have tuned into him? Can we not tune into Christ and haven't saints across the centuries continued who've never met Christ or Krishna or Buddha or any of these great ones? Haven't they continued to find enlightenment through that? particular ray of power that they expressed all those millennia ago. And that's very important for us to kind of solidify in our own consciousness. I mean, it's easy for us to think of ourselves as a body, but let's not make the same mistake for these great ones. Because if we do that, we limit their own ability to help us. We limit the, their own ability to transfer to us their power and their consciousness. Now, of course, this is such a sweet exchange, as I was saying, where the Guru says, you know, I've been serving you <laughs> quite cheerfully for a long time. I think you can let me go now and have a little period of rest in infinite bliss. <laughs> I think as disciples, we should be a little shamefaced and said, okay, you can go. I think also I love the fact that he even advises his disciple, how the disciple should pray for the Guru. Mm. In a very particular, clear way, he says, now rejoice and wish me God's speed. And how beautiful. That's the way we should pray for everyone. So they can achieve their spiritual understanding quicker and faster. And uh, I just loved these little, those two, three words, and wish me God's speed. I mean, this would be a wonderful way to pray for us, our brothers and sisters. And even for those people who are not on the spiritual path, those who are not even interested to be on a path at all. This is such a beautiful way to so impersonal, so powerful, uh, so embracing, so, uh, so spiritually powerful to pray for every soul evolution in their own way. And then the responsibility doesn't come on us. It comes and it belongs to God. And that's such a freeing thought. I, I don't really, in fact, I can't save anyone, but God can. And if I pray for that process to happen sooner rather than later, I mean, this is such a, um, wonderful way to to pray and support other people who are struggling uh, to achieve even little things in life I'd like to mention here for those who probably would be quite interested or excited about the fact that he leaves his body using the second kriya yogananda has a little footnote here that says the second kriya is taught by lahiri mahashaya enables the devotee that has mastered it, which is the key point here, <laughs> to leave and return to the body consciously at any time. Advanced yogis use the second Kriya technique 
during the last exit of death, a moment they invariably know beforehand. On our uh, path, in our tradition of Yoganandaji's, the same second Kriya is actually what we would call our third Kriya, because Yoganandaji added in the second Kriya, gave a slightly different uh, addition to it for his disciples. But, you know, some of us have been practicing the third and fourth Kriya for long enough, but we've not mastered it yet to the point where we can consciously exit and enter into our body. But isn't it fascinating that such techniques exist and just increasing that zeal to want to have that experience because how long can we affirm and just say, oh yeah, it's true, I am a soul, I am a soul, I am a soul, I'm not this body, but even our own minds not fully convinced of that. <laughs> you know, even while we're saying it, we're not actually sure. <laughs> and I was like, am I really a soul though? So you need, you know, we need these means, we need concrete evidence, not of what saints have done, not of what Swami Pranabhananda will do, not even of what our own Guru has done, because he's not come here to show us as he always reminds us how great he was. But just give us those tools that little by little, but the key part is to master it, which means to spend that much time with it, to really give it everything that we have. Because you know we could be playing with these techniques for a very, very long time and not even actually activate the power that lies behind it. Because it's not the technique itself. It's our consciousness, it's our power. And most of all, it's the zeal with which we seek God desperately that suddenly activates those techniques in us. He looked at the sea of faces before us and gave a blessing. Directing his gaze inwardly to the spiritual eye, he became immobile. While the bewildered crowd thought he was in meditating, that he was meditating in an ecstatic state, he had already left the tabernacle of flesh and plunged his soul into the vast, the cosmic vastness. The disciples touched his body, seated in the lotus posture, but it was no longer the warm flesh. Only a stiffened frame remained. The tenant had left, had fled to the immortal shore. I love that word, the tenant. It's like, you know, <laughs> we're renting this home and someday we will leave this home and the tenant has fled. Reminds me of a very cute story, a Zen story of a monk who comes to a palace and demands to meet the king. And he comes and the king says, you know, because the king realizes he's a holy man, so he allows him audience. And the man, the monk says, I'd like to stay here in this house. And the king gets a little like, well, this is not a guest house, you know, this is my palace. How dare you ask to stay here, like as if demanding, you know. So... And the monk's a little confused. He's like, have you always lived here? He's like, yes, before me, my father lived here. And who lived here before him? His father. And who lived him before? And his father. And so the monk says, sounds to me that it's just a temporary space for many people. So I also just want to book a house, a room in this place. And we get so connected with like, oh, this is my home. This is my body. But who lived here before us? <laughs> you know, somebody else. And who lived here before him? Somebody else. And it's just like a guest house over and over again. We pay for a little room for a little period and then our time is up and the landlord kicks us out <laughs> and then we go looking for another home in another incarnation. So it's a beautiful way to just see ourselves as a tenant in this body temporarily. I inquired where Pranabhananda was to be reborn. Now this is the exciting part because he said, I'll be reborn shortly and then I'll be with Papaji. And then the disciple <laughs> That's a sacred trust I cannot divulge to anyone. He's a good disciple, isn't he? Sanandan replied, Perhaps you may find out some other way. Years later, I discovered from Swami Keshabananda, another disciple, if you remember, of Lahiri Mahasaya's, that Pranabhananda, a few years after his birth in a new body, had gone to Badrinarayan in the Himalayas and there joined the group of saints around the great. Babaji. I also want to mention that Pranabhananda's um, ashram in Rishikesh is still very much there. Uh, every time we go on a pilgrimage to Rishikesh, we always stop there, have a meditation over there. And one really special attraction of that uh, ashram is that it contains the ashes. crematory ashes of Lahiri Mahashaya. So it's a beautiful place to just 
meditate before you know those sacred remains or whatever remains of Lahiri Mahashaya. So if you ever happen to be in that area, it's on the way between Dehradun to Rishikesh comes Swami Pranabhananda's ashram. So do visit that space. I was thinking like so interesting that right now, as we speak, there is a very small group of disciples mm. around Babaji in the Himalayas. I mean, right now, who knows what they are doing, probably in ecstasy. <laughs> but it would be fun sometimes to meditate on those small group of disciples, that small group of disciples. We know at least two of them that Yogananda mentioned here in the autobiography of Ayogi. One of them is Swami Pranabhananda, that right now he must be in ecstasy and samadhi with Babaji. And the other one that we know is Mataji, Babaji's sister. So I don't know how small that group is, but at least we know two of them. And it will be interesting, perhaps once in a while, to meditate in what that means to be in that small group of disciples in such close proximity uh, with Babaji, what are they doing, you know, why such a small group right now is needed, you know, with Babaji. And I don't know, and we, there is a full chapter here on Swami Pranabhananda. So if you want to get to know a little bit more his consciousness, his path, uh, how, he, how he achieved what he achieved, and brought him to this small group of disciples. It would be good for us because all of us um, meditate and try to understand and get to know Yogananda's disciples, Yogananda's direct disciples, and Sri Yudeshwar's disciples. But why not also to see who are those closest disciples of Babaji and see what we can learn from them and how to absorb and invite some of their consciousness into our meditation and Kriya practices or Hongso and energization exercises because they have achieved something that we are looking for or trying to work within ourselves. So perhaps if we invite their help, their support and I don't know, we may receive some sort of a blessing because Babaji has appointed them to you know, help all of us and wish us you know, that Godspeed. Should we continue on to the next chapter? We just ended yes. chapter 27 and since we have some time, we'll just start with chapter 28. We spoke about this, in fact, um, where was it? In the Bhagavad Gita class? I think so. Yes. And this chapter is Kashi Reborn and Rediscovered. Let's start here from the second paragraph. We enjoyed a picnic lunch after we reached our destination. I sat under a tree surrounded by a group of students. Finding me in an inspirational mood, they plied me with questions. Please tell me, sir, one youth inquired, if I shall always stay with you in the path of renunciation. Again, a very similar question mm -hmm. to the previous one. Ah, no, I replied. You will be forcibly taken away to your home and later you will marry. Incredulous, he made a vehement protest. Only if I am dead can I be carried home. But in a few months, his parents arrived to take him away in spite of his tearful resistance. And some years later, he did marry. Again, just a very interesting flow, isn't it, of how we think life ought to be or how we perceive our own intentions. I mean, I remember as, an, as a child, how many different um, vocations must I have thought I'm going to, I'm going to be a scientist one day, I'm going to be an actor one day, I'm going to be the you know, whatever, prime minister of India one day. Whatever fancy comes into a child's mind for that moment, it so desperately believes that you know. Once I have it in my mind, it has to happen. But of course, life has so many different kind of hidden discoveries that await us. And here for this little boy, you know, really keen on being with Yogananda for the rest of his life. Imagine that, even being in the presence of a self-realized master, mm -hmm. having such an experience as a young boy to be in his presence, to potentially be in his presence for the rest of that life. But even that isn't to be so, is it? 
and uh, it just shows what it means truly to be a disciple that has nothing to do with the physical presence again because here they were these children were and did they stay on to the spiritual path did they really stay attuned to yogananda for their entire lives who knows what karmas came and took them where but for some of us whether we've ever been with him or in this life or not his presence is so real <laughs> his name reverberates with so much reverence and power in our consciousness that it's like he's right here and that we're here you know we're picnicking with him right now and every aspect of our lives are being guided by him because that's the decision we've made i'm going to be your disciple no matter what and then you see in these guys i mean like it's just a matter of one or two lifetime because you know okay they are with yogananda you know receiving that then they have to get married but but you just can't see that it's just going to take uh, you know it's not such a long time after all and the same for us once we take discipleship one we open our hearts to the guru no matter you know if we need to get married some people have to go through the process of being parents or someone you know has to be the boss of a big company i mean it just doesn't matter it's just you know one or two three more lifetimes that we need to fulfill those desires you know to pay off that particular karma specific lesson we have to learn but but you can feel in your heart like you know i don't think i'm going to go off for too long and the beauty is that and now we will see more than ever the guru will always rescue us he won't let us go way too far from the path you know we'll just do whatever we need to do to resolve certain you know to fulfill some desires to be a little bit more disappointed so we really realize <laughs> that there is nothing the that will give, give us you know a fulfillment there's still a few God. disappointments yeah. waiting for us <laughs> but yeah for me i see this like a such a great hope you know i don't see like someone leaving the path to get married you know to just be completely off track it's just okay now he's going to you know Uh, be disappointed a little bit faster so he will go back to the path sooner than he thought after answering many questions i was addressed by a lad named kashi he was about 12 years old a brilliant student and beloved by all sir he said what will be my fate you shall soon be dead that reply came from my lips with an irresistible force you can only imagine that you know little child 12 year old child asking and yogananda just somehow saying oh you'll soon be dead and even as he was saying it you know how sometimes we say certain things and we wish we we didn't let those words escape our lips but in behind in his particular case he's saying there was a force behind those words that perhaps in that moment needed to be said this unexpected disclosure shocked and grieved me as well as everyone present slightly rebuking myself as an enfant terrible but is that the right pronunciation close enough <laughs> french words thrown in here whatever what are we to do i refused to answer further questions on our return to school kashi came to my room if i die will you find me when i am reborn and bring me again to the spiritual path he sobbed Now right in this line you see already Kashi's just amazing advancement spiritually mm-hmm. speaking. I mean a 12 year old child, you know, he could have go I don't want to die and you know you can save me or whatever it is. I mean we are that 12 year old child because I don't want my money to disappear. I don't want people to dislike me. I do I mean you know we're just constantly throwing these tantrums to the universe and to our guru and to God. and this child just comes and says if i die because he's understood that if my guru has said this is going to happen he's quite certain himself now that this is of course going to happen and the guru wouldn't have said it otherwise will you find me when i am reborn and bring me again to the spiritual path now if none of us have actually verbalized these words but these words hold true for all of us as disciples mm-hmm. as narayan was saying 
just slight little detours here and there. But once you've made a connection to the Guru, his responsibility to us is eternal. Unlike our, you know, so-called commitment to him, which kind of wanes and waxes and ebbs and flows, and sometimes we are really committed and sometimes we don't feel like it at all. But his commitment to us is, you know, solid, it's eternal. eternal. No matter where we are, no matter what we're doing, any opening he finds, which is the key part here, he has to find an opening into our consciousness. He'll come in and he'll find ways to redirect our lives, to draw us back. Just as, you know, we were born into families that had nothing to do with Yogananda at all. But somewhere, somehow he found us, you know, or he made sure we find him. And boom, there it was. That's all that was needed. And what could have been a trajectory into just starting with regular jobs, having a family and so on and so forth, which is, of course, nothing wrong with that. But that's not the life we signed up for, hopefully, in the last incarnation. And so Yogananda ensured that we continue that journey as many of us are continuing that journey now. I felt constrained to refuse this difficult occult responsibility. But for weeks afterward, Kashi pressed me doggedly. Seeing him unnerved to the breaking point, I finally consoled him. Yes, I promised, if the Heavenly Father lends his aid, I will try to find you. During the summer vacation, I started on a short trip. Regretting that I could not take Kashi with me, I called him to my room before leaving and carefully instructed him to remain against all persuasion in the spiritual vibrations of the school. Somehow I felt that if he did not go home, he might avoid the impending calamity. Now, of course, as we will see later on, that he does go home, but that's a very interesting thing, isn't it? Um, on Sunday, we were addressing a question very similar to, you know, karma versus free will. And here we get into that same moment, isn't it? There's karma, which Yogananda says, you are soon going to leave this body. And then there's also a potential remedy where Yogananda says, if you don't, if you use your free will now to stay in this vibration, if you hold yourself against all persuasion, which means what? Karma is like this force that's been put into motion, right? And it's a huge force. And it's going to be not easy to stop this force because it's been put into motion eons ago. It's been gathering a momentum for so long. And it's been fed lifetime after lifetime, perhaps. And now this force e exists. And in order to change this force, when somebody says, what's free will? Well, free will has to be stronger than that karma then. The amount of will that we'll have to put out in that moment has to be that much stronger in order to derail this karmic force that the universe has already allowed into motion. And uh, it reminds me of another story in Yogananda's uh, monastery when he was in America of a disciple, what was it? He was about to leave the path and he leaves mm -hmm. the, the, the ashram and Yogananda says, if only he had stayed one more day in the spiritual vibrations of this ashram, that karma would have completely been neutralized. That's it. If he had only held one more day there, he wouldn't have had to kind of then go on and live whatever life he ended up living. Can you? I mean, that's how sometimes our decisions, and that's why when we talk about free will, we're really talking about divine will. Because we don't know free will. Our free will is like so, so easily abused, so easily preconditioned. So much does it only want to follow our likes and dislikes, which are predestined. Our likes and dislikes are created in the past. Therefore, they're not free. Anything created in the past is not free anymore. It's a condition. I already know I like this over this, so therefore I'm going to do this. Free will is to break beyond our likes and dislikes, attune to God's will, and then act in accordance with that which will neutralize karma as opposed to create more karma. And this is where Kashi finds himself. There is a karmic reality, but there is also a potential for that karma to be overcome. But it's going to require a lot more 
And what is it that he's going to have to require in this particular case to go against his own father? No sooner had I left that Kashi's father arrived in Ranchi. For 15 days, for 15 days, I mean, look at that child. Boy, that's, that's a good child. For 15 days, he tried to break the will of his son, explaining that if Kashi would go to Calcutta for only four days to see his mother, he could then return. Kashi persistently refused. The father finally said he would take the boy away with the help of the police. The threat disturbed Kashi who was unwilling to be the cause of any unfavorable publicity to the school, he saw no choice but to go. You can see that tug of war, can't you? Past karma in the form of his father, kind of just hitting him over and over again. Let's do this, let's do this, let's do this, let's do this. And you've seen many different ways to... To ensure, ensure that that yeah. karma plays out. Mm. And Kashi trying his best, already aware, I mean, it's like, we know what we need to do at times to overcome certain karmas, but our will's not always up to it. Kashi's will is way up to it. And the only reason he finally gives in is because his father employs that final method. But there it is, that constant war that plays out. Our own karma versus divine will. Our own karma versus divine will. And in this particular case, Kashi knew what that divine will was. In our cases, we mostly don't because we're not so attuned to our guru. We don't hear his voice as often as we easily could. If only we were still enough and if only our own likes and dislikes didn't create so much of a static interference with the clarity of his voice. And well, so karma wins <laughs> and karma gets to play itself out. I returned to Rachi a few days later when I heard how Kashi had been removed I entrained at once for Calcutta. This is Yoganandaji speaking. There I engaged a horse cab. Very strangely, as the vehicle passed beyond the Havra bridge over the Ganges, I beheld Kashi's father and other relatives in mourning clothes. Shouting to my driver to stop, I rushed out and glared at the unfortunate father. Mr. Murderer, I cried somewhat unreasonably. I love these words. Even Yogananda in that moment said, he realized, he said those words and he said somewhat unreasonably, Mr. Murderer, you have killed my boy. The father had realized, had already realized the wrong he had done in forcibly bringing Kashi to Calcutta. During the few days the boy had been there, he had eaten contaminated food, contracted cholera and passed on. I want to stop just for a few seconds here. I love when Yogananda says here, I am trained at once. Mm. I mean, the moment, the moment he heard those news that one of his children was taken away against their will. I mean, one of his disciples was attacked in such a way he just ran towards that disciple to save him. And that's really what the Guru does with each one of us when he sees we are into troubles. And in addition, not only when we are into trouble, but when we put tremendous amount of energy to resist that force that is trying to bring us out from the path, or from that promise we have made to our Guru, or from that commitment that we want to fulfill. And this is going to be always tested. And, but when we don't give in too easily, when we try to resist uh, in the best of our abilities, when we do our best, the Guru sees that. And even if the other negative force wins, the Guru will rush, will run, will jump into that situation and will try to rescue us. So his part will always be there. He will always run towards us to save us. But even more, when we put that willpower to resist that force that is trying to shake in us, that is trying to, you know, 
take away the, the thought or the commitment that we made or the determination that we created. So um, you will see that, we see that in our lives, sometimes daily, when you know we are having our weaknesses, when the time to meditate comes, or the time to practice the nutrition exercises. But even if we don't want, even if we feel tired, even if we don't have time, but we just say, well, maybe for a minute I will do it. Then the guru comes in and gives you the willpower, the strength and the energy to do those energization exercises or to that meditation or to resist that karma or to put away that person in your life that is constantly putting you down. For each one of us, the test is going to be different, the kind of negative force that we need to fight, that we will need to fight is completely different, but no for a matter of fact, if we put even, a, as Yogananda said, over 25%, the Guru will come and will save you. And if not in that moment, right next moment, but in a very, very short time, in this case, we will see he couldn't save Kashi in this lifetime, but just next lifetime, <laughs> he was there, even before Kashi was born. That's incredible. I mean, that's powerful. So don't be afraid to resist those situations that are constantly shaking your faith, your determination, your commitment to follow through this path on a daily basis. Well, I think with that, we bring our class today to a close. We'll find out we left it on a cliffhanger where is Kashi going to be born? How yes. is he going to be found? So we'll find that out on Saturday. Tomorrow we're doing the satsang on the topic, Super Consciousness is not for wimps. So if you think that might be something that's going to benefit you, we're doing it because it's definitely going to benefit us to keep reminding ourselves we can't be wimps 